The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots. I'm James Heal and I'm joined today by Fraser Nelson and Katie Balls. Now, it is a year ago today since Boris Johnson announced his resignation as Prime Minister. On that day, 6th, 7th July 2022, the polls from YouGov showed that the Conservatives were on 29 points, Labour on 40 points, an 11-point lead. Today, the Conservatives are on 22 points and Labour on 47 points, a 25-point lead. Katie, talk us through this. Why has it all happened? Well, let me tell you a story. No, <laughs> I mean, we all know what's happened. Uh, I think it actually feels a bit strange that it was only a year ago um, because in that time, we haven't just had Rishi Sunak, we had Liz Truss, you've had the mini budget. And and therefore, I think it's it's obviously, as you would expect, that lots of people to mark the day, depending on who they're backing. Some are coming out saying, see, the, you know, the situation with Boris Johnson really wasn't very bad. This is a mad mistake. Rishi Sunak's not up to it. I think it would be fairer to point out that what happened between Boris Johnson going and Rishi Sunak taking over was lots more political turmoil, partly in the mini budget. But it is fair to say that I think if you think back to those mass resignations to oust Boris Johnson, back then there was definitely a sense of hope amongst Tory MPs that actually they could just do a quick course correction and they would fix things ahead of the next election in the sense of a new leader. They thought Boris Johnson was too scandal ridden, but the message was still vaguely the right one. And as long as they just had a a different person in place, um, things would be able to improve quite quickly. I think the drift of a Tory leadership contest or the poll lead get worse. And also, I think just the poison you unleash every time you have a leadership contest, it's quite hard to put back in the box. So you now get to the present day where you have a party that isn't feeling particularly mutinous. So we're talking about a pretty bad poll from YouGov for the Tories. I mean, it's summer party season. We had our party this week. The year before, it was almost the beginnings of the leadership contest with the different you know, potential mm. leaders stood in areas. This year, there's, there's no talk, at least I came across, I don't know about you, Fraser, of anyone saying this person should take over from Rishi Sunak. But I think what has happened is there's a bit of a sense of fatigue and probably despondency. And therefore, it's harder to find MPs who think the next election is still in play. I think this is important because I remember looking back a year ago, the people I was speaking to were talking cabinet members who were saying, look, we know this is a dramatic step to basically defenestrate a leader who was elected by the people. I mean, no matter what you think of him, Boris Johnson was there because millions of people voted Tory largely due to him in 2019. So if you're going to put him out, that will be huge agony. Is it worth the agony? The argument then that was used to me several times was that he has become a lightning rod. So now we're at 11 points behind, they would say, and that's simply because your average person who doesn't really engage in politics thinks that Boris Johnson is a disaster. So if we were able to remove Boris Johnson, the lightning rod would go away, and if we had somebody without his personality, but also without his ability to be polarising, then we would get a better opinion poll rating. Right now, the Tories would kill, absolutely kill, to be back only 11 points behind where they were a year ago. And when Rishi Sunak took over, he was 30 points behind, and not so long ago he was 15 points behind. And that was the moment 
looking back of probably peak optimism for the Conservatives, an optimism which, by the way, I shared, because I could certainly see then a scenario where they went from 30 points behind to 15 points behind. If you went into single digits by the turn of next year, then you'd have a competitive election. And that would be far better than where they were after Liz Trust to be competitive. And from there, you could see during the rest of the campaign, Labour's policies perhaps not standing up to scrutiny, and the Tories, who, thanks to the boundary changes, could win even if they were three or four points behind. So it was plausible then. Less plausible now, because that the pools are not steadily closing, the gap isn't closing at all, it's actually growing again. And then, I guess also for me, a big moment was the five pledges, which at the time I um, thought were ridiculously easy to meet because I thought, of course, it's obvious that inflation, if it, even under Boris, inflation was forecast to more than half uh, this year. So saying that he would have inflation to me seemed to be taking credit for something that was happening anyway. To get economic growth seemed like uh, an absurdly low aspiration, given that most, even the medieval kings could get you know economic growth. It's difficult to find anybody running this country who hasn't done. But as it's turned out, the inflationary winds are blowing the wrong direction. The economic growth has been so negligible as to not really count for anything. It'll be a brave Tory who chaps on the door saying, by the way, we've grown your economy. It's not going to feel like that to the people they're talking to. So a year on, we should ask ourselves, was it worth it? Was the Conservative decision to get rid of Boris Johnson worthwhile in terms of their own electability? And right now, I can find no evidence to say that it was. That's not to say that I don't share all the criticisms of Boris Johnson. I think he's he turned out to be a, a, an appallingly bad prime minister who squandered the opinion poll lead that he had. But I have always been very hesitant about undoing decisions made by the electorate. And I think the defenestration strategy has not not left the Tories in a better place. You can always think about parallel universes. So what would have happened, say, if Boris Johnson stayed? I think to Fraser's point, it's hard to say the Tory party is in a much better place (laughs) if you look at the polls, for sure. Um, But also, if we just imagine Boris Johnson had stayed put, so all those ministers started to resign, but actually he had Peter Bone and it kept going on and people calmed down, going into the summer recess, returned. You would have still had the Privileges Committee hanging over him, which obviously Boris Johnson approved. It was a number 10 approved Privileges Committee when they were another scrap because it was constantly almost going from scrap to scrap. And therefore, given the verdict, we'd probably right now be being in a by-election um, sparked yeah. by, by the Privileges Committee with Boris Johnson fighting to keep his seat. Uh, rather than talking about five by-elections to Rishi Sunak, which of course he's facing, we're talking about one by-election involving a prime minister. And maybe that, you know, again, the people would have a chance to have their say, but that would suggest to me, particularly with the more party gate allegations going on, that it wouldn't have come to an end yet. We'd be at the point now where it would be the people of Uxbridge get to decide whether Boris Johnson, you know, how the party gate saga ends. Mm. Um, so it's hard for me to envision one being particularly smooth. I think Boris Johnson did bring a certain type of voter that Rishi Sunak has less appeal for, but I just don't think either scenario I mean no one could have really imagined that it would end up being two leaders soon after Boris Johnson going Um, but I think the Boris Johnson staying scenario too would have been quite tricky Tricky but I'm not sure that the Privileges Committee would necessarily have found against him if he was still Prime Minister 
I mean, when they found against them, remember, Tory majority on that committee, and there was an element of political punishment there, that he was the ex-leader, a bad man, it's time to punish him, etc. If he were still Prime Minister, and the Tories in that committee realised that if they'd voted to discipline him, then they'd be pub- basically plunging their own party into a leadership crisis uh, in the months before a general election... I'm not so sure they would have voted in the same way. So in the same way that I think um, the decision to vote for such a large suspension for him was politically driven, I think the same political instincts of self-preservation would probably have led to them coming up with a, with a lighter penalty. Again, that's not to say I think he, he didn't behave deplorably. He did, but I think the lockdown parties wouldn't even feature in the top 20 things he did wrong as, as Prime Minister. Uh, talking of the Privileges Committee, it now transpires that uh, it's going to vote next week on the seven Tory MPs who criticised that committee in Parliament. And the Lib Dems have put forward an amendment to try and ensure that there's by-elections for which each of those seven MPs who criticised it. I mean, Katie, what happens here? Does Rishi Sunak effectively tell his MPs to vote against this because he doesn't want another half a dozen by-elections on top of the ones he's already expecting? The amendment that Ed Davies is trying to put down here is calling for those named um, MPs to be referred to the Committee of Privileges to consider whether the conduct of those members amounts to contempt of the House and therefore whether any sanctions should follow. And just to remind listeners, we've got a mix here. I think what we all have in common is they are Boris Johnson supporters. So you have, of course, Zach Goldsmith, who quit last Friday after he was asked to apologise by the Prime Minister. Then you also have Nadine Doris, who, of course, is current is a Tory MP, but is saying she's going to spark a by-election anyway so that might not be it might be what actually forced her to do on it, it, hasn't it yet resigned. Out. Um, that's correct you've got Jacob Rees-Mogg and you have Priti Patel in that mix and obviously Jacob Rees-Mogg's seat is one that the Liberal Democrats have wanted for some time mm. um, so these would be pretty safe seats now are we talking in a world where this is actually quite unlikely to happen I think first of the men it has to be called and we won't know if it will be called on until Monday even if it did end up in the Privileges Committee would these figures actually get suspensions over 10 days um, for criticising the committee. I think it'd be quite controversial were they to. Rishi Sunak, of course, could try to stop it if it's called by whipping MPs to um, try and kill the amendment. But you have seen this government's very, very reluctant to whip on uh, matters relating to the Privileges Committee. Go back to the Owen Patterson debacle, which again, I think is another sign that it wasn't just Partygate for Boris Johnson. It was the Owen Patterson debacle and the handling by Boris Johnson, where they tried to whip MPs and then U-turned, I think has scarred many MPs from, even if they were told to vote a certain way in a privileges vote, they probably wouldn't. And uh, finally, Fraser, yesterday on the podcast, we discussed Keir Starmer's big speech, but we didn't get your thoughts on Orissey and uh, the new programme he proposed for better speaking in schools. Well, I I should declare an interest here that I'm a son of an English teacher. And... um, I guess I therefore have got uh, this view that the way that English is taught in schools ought to be left to teachers and head teachers. I get instinctively suspicious when I see a lawyer like Keir Starmer or an accountant like uh, Rishi Sunak standing up and saying that uh, this should happen in schools or that should happen in schools. I think the national curriculum, it, that should be basic. So when Keir Starmer is saying that he thinks that people should be taught oracy, that's his word. It's not a new word. It was um, there was a paper advocating what he was advocating in 1965. But to me, the question is somebody's got... I was listening to his press conference and all the questions after it, and nobody asked what to me is the most obvious question, that if you as Prime Minister would introduce this oracy and have all curriculums change to adapt to it, where is the evidence that this would work? 
who is speaking up for the pupils here? What makes you think that this would work in the way that you intend it to work? Pupils should not be sitting there as guinea pigs for a political experiment, especially not one that just simply sounds good in speeches. Now, one of the great things about the Labour-initiated school reform is that the, um, that the City Academies programme, which um, Michael Gove later turned into academies and free schools, you had um, Peter Hyman, who used to be a Blair advisor in education, set up a free school, School 21, it was called, is called. And it started off pretty good. It got an outstanding offset inspection. But it is been implementing Oracy in the way that Keir Starmer approaches. Hyman now, by the way, is devising Keir Starmer. So Oracy is uh, Peter Hyman's pet project. Now, when we look at School 21, if it had the record of Catherine Burble Singh's Michaela Community School, then you might say, yes, here is an outstanding school that's getting great results for its pupils. So maybe it's come up with a new teaching technique which ought to be rolled out nationally because you'd have evidence. But instead, School 21 was downgraded two notches in its last Ofsted inspection. So now it requires improvement. And they found there that there were worrying gaps in the, in the pupils' knowledge. So this is the problem. If you do what Nicola Sturgeon did in Scotland, come up with a curriculum for excellence, which you claim is the latest thing and it's been approved by academics, unless these pedagogical techniques have been proved to work in the classroom, then you can't really be confident they're going to work. So I am instinctively, uh, I basically agree with George Tomlinson, who was one of Attlee's um, education secretaries, who said that the minister knows nought about the curriculum. There, that was a very good point, saying, look, we're politicians, we're good at certain things, but we're not experts in education, and we ought to have the humility of trusting the teachers, of trusting the head teachers, of trusting the parents to put their kids into the best schools. You just simply cannot play about with schools like they're a political toy. You cannot introduce a new element of a national curriculum because you think it sounds quite good in a class war speech. So that's why I am very hesitant of the plan to implement oracy on English schools. And I do wish that we had a sort of debate where no politician would really propose implementing any change unless, first of all, they had really good evidence that it works. It was Tories did that with phonics, by the way. I wasn't wild about centrally imposing a, a regime there, but the phonics record has, has been all right. But to centrally impose anything at all suggests a re-politicisation of schools, which I don't think is welcome after the decentralisation of the Blair years, which the Conservatives successfully continued. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Fraser. And thank you very much for listening to Coffee House Shots.